Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Well, on Friday, officially, the Olympics will begin in Rio uh, at a cost of about $15 billion, which is 25 times what Brazil is uh, spending to combat the mosquito that spreads Zika as well as several, several other very dangerous viruses. And it's kind of confusing to say that the Olympics starts on Friday because, in fact, the Olympics has already really kind of started. There are soccer games today, for example. Uh, we're going to talk about the history of the Olympics, why they exist at all, what the challenges have been. Uh, we're also going to talk specifically about the challenges here in 2016 at Rio. Uh, and then at the end of the show, because we don't want to be entirely negative about all this, we're going to introduce you to a very engaging, well-grounded, uh, although he competes on water, well-grounded, well, mentally balanced, uh, well-adjusted Olympic athlete, Devin McEwen, who's a slalom whitewater canoeist. Uh, and he's also the son of a uh, an Olympic medalist, uh, an Olympic medalist who died a couple of years ago. Uh, his father uh, died of, uh, of cancer about two years ago, uh, and multiple myeloma, in fact. And then his mother is Sandra Boynton, the very famous uh, cartoonist and greeting card um, designer. Uh, so all of that is to come, but we want to talk very specifically about why the Olympics exist at all uh, and what they've been through uh, in various other years. Uh, one of the things that I started to realize uh, reading the book by David Goldblatt, our first guest here, a sports writer, broadcaster in Bristol, England, uh, author of The Games, A Global History of the Olympics, is that many of the storylines we talk about in 2016, as though they represent somewhat fresh storylines about a city hosting the Olympics, are in fact storylines that repeat themselves over and over again. Uh, we'll talk about ways in which, for example, the Mexico City Olympics uh, had some of the elements that we see in Rio, but worse. Uh, they actually included a, mac a massacre. We'll come to that in just a second. But first of all, David Goldblatt, welcome to our show. Well, thank you very much for having me. Before we go negative, let's go positive. Why, why do the Olympics exist in their contemporary form? Why are they here and, and what do they supposedly do for us? Well, they're reinvented in uh, 1894 at a conference in Paris led by Baron de Coubertin, a French aristocrat who had imbibed the uh, public school sports ethos of uh, Victorian England and indeed of the, um, the uh, universities of uh, the United States, where sport was a way of uh, engendering the esprit de corps, the muscular Christianity, uh, the leadership skills, you know, for the gentlemen of, uh, of Northern Europe and the United States to equip them to go and rule the, their empires. And indeed, de Coubertin thought of sport and the Olympics as a display of manly virtue for which the reward is the polite applause of women. Um, and that, um, combined with a kind of, a sort of, you know, modern, a neo-Hellenic 
cult of the gentleman athlete is actually what animates the games. I mean, to this, of course, de Coubertin smartly adds, you know, a sense of internationalism and draws on these sort of Pacific notions from his reading of the ancient games. But the core of it is about, is about gentlemanly amateurs and the ethical virtues of their way of playing sport. Um, in fact, we get a little taste of this in, in Chariots of Fire, right? Particularly the little conversation that's going on between John Gilgood uh, and Lindsay Anderson as these two Oxford dons looking down their nose at Abrams, who's training uh, in, in a much more professional manner and none, one unbecoming of the kind of gentleman ethos that you're talking about. Absolutely. The, um, I mean, the whole notion of, you know, what an amateur was, you know, is uh, was used by the Olympics to suggest a kind of moral purity, a way of keeping, you know, nasty commercialism out of sport. But in actual fact, amateur, amateurism to a great extent was about social exclusion. If you think about the um, the Henley uh, Regatta, which is the uh, the main rowing organisation, stages the kind of the biggest rowing events in uh, England. That was the model for the IOC. De Coubertin absolutely loved it, and their rules on amateurism were not only that um, if you'd ever won a prize or taken money for a rowing competition, you were out, but if you'd ever done manual labour and been paid for it. And that sort of tells you, you know, amateurism is about keeping the unwashed out rather than preserving the sort of moral purity of sport. Um, we've said we've talked about manliness and the applause of women a few times. So the early Olympic Games were less likely to recognize the possible contributions of, of women athletes. Oh, for sure. I mean, you know, the first Games in 1896 uh, are 251 athletes and all of them are white men. But then one of the fabulous things about the history of the Olympics and what sort of keeps me, you know, engaged with it is that it has also been uh, this incredible public theatre for previously excluded groups, you know, women, the disabled, people of colour, all to stake their claim uh, at the Olympics and to, you know, force us to rethink what the norms of the athletic body of what humanity really looks like. And I find that, you know, that's one of the great things uh, about the Games. And so, you know, from 1900 onwards, when um, the first women athletes appear, we have a long, slow revolution that brings us, you know, today somewhere reasonably close to sort of gender parity in terms of number of athletes at any rate at Rio. I want to talk, uh, but, but the, this history is fascinating. It's uh, it's a, a, a large book. There's no way we can even begin to cover uh, all of it or even some of it. Uh, but there are so many ways in which things that strike me as contemporary problems are not contemporary problems. One of the things that you point out is that the use of drugs in sports had, has become and had been an issue has been an issue for the Olympics since 1930 uh, or even earlier. You write, in the early 20th century, athletes and coaches made use of stimulants like strychnine, alcohol, caffeine, amphetamines, cola nuts, and oxygen. They were openly used in professional cycling, boxing, and walking, but plenty of amateur runners and rowers like to dip into the medicine chest, too. The IOC was first officially alarmed by the issue of doping in the late 1930s, but characteristically only insofar as it threatened the amateur ethos. I'm willing to bet that people who encounter this in your book uh, are surprised to find out that it goes back that far. Well, I was pretty surprised, to tell you the truth, when I first read about the uh, marathon uh, at St. Louis in 1904, 
where um, the guy who actually wins it is being fed a steady diet of brandy, egg white, and strychnine, which extraordinarily, <laughs> in small doses, seems to be a kind of effective stimulant. Although we don't well, recommend we don't recommend that for our listeners. No, I really don't do don't do that one at home. Um, or similarly, you know the. Um, you know, there's reports of, uh, you know, Norwegian speed skaters at the Oslo Winter Games in 1952 who took so much amphetamine sulfate that, um, you know, they were physically sick and unable to actually uh, compete. So I was I was surprised. Um, and, you know, one, the, the extent of, you know, drug uh, of doping uh, in uh, Olympic sport as, the, you know, the issue with Russia um, before these games demonstrates that sort of no amount of cynicism is um, is adequate at the moment. You know, it continues to be eye-popping, the level, the scale, and the sort of mendacity of doping in sport. And that's how it's been in the Olympics, frankly, since the 1950s. We'll circle back to that uh, in a little while. But I also want to talk about the, the process of selecting host cities and, and, in fact, the forces that drive cities to want to be host cities. We know it's very ex- expensive. It turns out it's been very expensive for a long time. There's a lot of construction involved. A lot of the construction is not uh, inherently reusable uh, after the Olympics. But it seems, reading your book, is that one of the common threads is often that whatever it is you think about us, you're wrong. You know, uh, Rome and Tokyo trying to kind of live down their post-World War II reputations. Australia trying to prove that it's not a backwater. Mexico City trying to prove that it's technologically sophisticated in addition to being ethnologically colorful. That, that it's whatever you think about us, we're here to prove you wrong. Yeah, I think there's... I think there's a lot of truth in that way of looking at it. And the Olympics does offer this sort of, if you're going to make such a very big statement and one that seems, you know, uh, contradicts the kind of norm, then you need a very big platform on uh, on which to announce it. I mean, even the Nazis in their own way used 1936 um, to prove, you know, to say we are actually members of the international community. We can behave uh, according to international norms, although, you know, you think we're outrageous racists and bent on war. <laughs> and it turned out to be true. But for a moment in 1936, it served its purpose. Um, you know, yes, I think that's tr- I, I, I think that's true. Whether it always succeeds is um, is another matter. Um, and I wonder whether, you know, Brazil um, in particular, which was hoping to announce, you know, the unambiguous arrival as one of the BRICS as a major power in the world, as a serious, you know, industrialized, advanced nation, quite whether that is going to be the sort of legacy of 2016. One of the, first of all, to your point, you know, is this, uh, is this the best way you could spend X billion dollars in order to rectify certain things about your reputation? I, I think your book makes the persuasive argument that, no, probably there are better ways to spend that money or maybe even just fix the things that are actually wrong in your country instead of trying to, to paper them over. But it, I think in particular, some interesting games within games begin to go on during the Cold War, right? Russia uh, starts to, or the, or the Soviet Union wants to send a certain message about itself uh, that, that, in fact, Soviet communism uh, is a successful way of life and a successful way of governing. How does that work out? Well, I, I mean, you know, the uh, the Soviet Union applies in 1951 
um, to attend the 1952 Games. And prior to this, there had been extensive debate actually within the Soviet hierarchy with some sort of worrying that, you know, to appear weak, to, you know, go out there and compete and look weak would be, you know, too risky. Um, and others saying, you know, this is the perfect opportunity, you know, to extend um, the Cold War, you know, to another cultural front, which is, of course, what is going on. And so um, that, that's precisely, you know, the, uh, the, the purpose, very self-consciously amongst the kind of, you know, athletic and political elite that, you know, this is another form of the Cold War. And the United States absolutely responds in kind. Um, it may not be sort of state-directed in, in quite the same fashion. And it seems to me that's one of the things that makes the Olympics um, is what brings it to such great prominence. You know, the kind of um, the desire to spend money today is partly built on the legacy of the Cold War in the Games, which elevated it to a kind of position of global cultural significance, conflict, and made for sort of extraordinary televised drama uh, as well. Um, and, you know, we can see from uh, the arrival of the, um, the Soviet Union in 1952 at Helsinki all the way through to, you know, the end of the Soviet Union up until really the Seoul Games, through medal counts, through boycotts, through um, accusations of cheating, through an effective arms race of steroids in uh, weightlifting, the Cold War is very much played out at the Games. Um, we certainly have been treated over the last week or two to the reemergence of Shirley Babishoff, who was anticipated in 1976 in Montreal to be the, the hero uh, of the Games for the, for the uh, Olympics, this uh, amazing swimmer who came in with all kinds of uh, credibility uh, and then turned out to be a silver medalist pretty consistently instead of a gold medalist. When the wall came down in 89, I mean, everything that she said at the time, which was a lot of these East German athletes are, are not like me. They are, they have deep voices and mustaches. <laughs> I think that was her exact term. Um, you know, I mean, just the spectacle of that, an athlete who has trained her entire life, who has focused on her swimming to the exclusion of all else for three, four, five, six years heading into these Olympics and, and, and ending in disappointment because of cheating that seemed pretty obvious to the naked eye and then was confirmed more than a decade later. It seems to undercut the very foundation of what we think the Olympics are supposed to be. Yeah, you know, there's sort of terrible cruelty about it and, you know, the the perception of a level playing field. And I should say, I think this is more than about just doping. I mean, we're also, you know, this is a wider crisis in global sport, um, you know, which also encompasses match-fixing, the behavior of judges in events, um, you know, where, you know, judgment is, is, is important, gymnastics, skating. The Olympics persistently um, suffers from, um, you know, scandals and conflicts in these areas. So the integrity of the sporting moment, you know, um, which is what generates spontaneity and narrative and kind of pulls us to watch and engage with these things. You know, if, if you cannot sustain that, you're in serious trouble, you know. Um, and that's what makes, you know, the, the Russian doping case um, that uh, before the game so worrying. Uh, and also we find in boxing, I don't know if you've seen, there are reports this week that there seems to have been collusion um, amongst judges uh, in the uh, international boxing world that may well be carried over into the Games in return for countries, you know, that uh, sponsored um, 
otherwise unpopular global boxing tournaments. Um, they'll, they'll be, there are many moments that you, that in your book where one has a kind of dry, despairing cackle. Uh, and I don't mean to lay everything in the, at, at the feet of the Soviets because we'll come to the failures of capitalism uh, straight away. But uh, in the, the notion that in the 1980 Moscow Olympics, the, the drug testing was just placed in the, under the control, apparently, of the Soviets, who kept saying, nope, nope, nobody's testing positive. Nope, no drugs at this Olympics. <laughs> I mean, not just that, but, you know, they had the temerity you know, to say they were the cleanest games ever, um, which the IOC, in their kind of unbelievable naivety, went on to Paris. And, you know, thankfully, we have a pharmaceutical hero in uh, a West German doctor of the era called yeah. Manfred Dinker, who took a whole bunch of the samples away uh, and did his own tests on them, uh, including more sophisticated tests for testosterone uh, and testosterone production. And reckon that, you know, something in the region of 15 to 20 percent of all medal winners, um, you know, had been doping up to their eyeballs. Um, So that we don't lay all the blame at the feet uh, of the Soviets, we should talk about 1984. Um, This is maybe the beginning of the hyper commercialization of the Olympics. I mean, not that they were never commercialized before, but the thing that we recognize now, uh, does that in fact begin with the USA in 1984? I think what it doesn't really begin in 1984 because, you know, people have been TV rights, the value of TV rights has been escalating through the um, 1960s and 1970s. Um, sponsorship has come to the games before 1984. Um, but what changes is you've got somebody in charge who really knows how to actually make it work, who's a serious capitalist. And, you know, Peter Uberoth is a uh, is the key figure in charge of uh, of the games and he does three things that nobody else has really done before first of all he gets the money for the olympic games from television that it's really worth who actually plays properly hardball with the networks and makes the japanese and the europeans actually pay up for the first time the second thing he does is that he deals with sponsorship properly he looks at the previous olympics um i think it was lake placid the winter games uh and uh, and said you know there's like 300 sponsors here and you end up with a lifetime supply of yogurt and chapsticks and no money So what they do is they say there's going to be a small number of sponsorships, one for each kind of product. You've got to be a global multinational and you better pay up. Uh, And suddenly, you know, they're getting, you know, tens of millions of dollars out of McDonald's uh, and out of uh, of Coca-Cola, which no one has managed before. And then, of course, what they do, which nobody else can do and nobody else has managed since, is um, they don't build anything. I mean, they build a velodrome, you know, but L.A., as with its 2024 bid, is a city that can say, OK, you know, USC, UCLA, your dorms are now the Olympic Village and everything's fine. Um, and that, you know, that's 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 what's unrepeatable. And that's what's become the kind of neoliberal myth of the games is that you can turn a profit on these things. But only L.A. has, and only L.A. possibly could. It is simply impossible otherwise, I think, under the current sort of circumstances to do so. And yes, you know, L.A. did bring some serious commercial uh, razzmatazz to the games. But, you know, the IOC then grabbed the bull with both horns themselves. It wasn't like, you know, they were trying to uh, stop the barbarians at the gates. Samaranch. 
uh, their then president of the IOC, took Uberoth's model and just, you know, just put the IOC in charge of it. Um, near the end of your book, you dis- you depict the the shareholders now, the stakeholders of the Olympics, as this kind of Gordian knot that can be neither untied nor cut through. Uh, it includes, in your words, the national political and economic coalitions that constitute organizing committees, the sporting goods industry, the world sporting media, transnational corporate sponsors, national and international sporting bureaucracies none of whom look or act like a social movement. And that's all piled on top of the IOC. And, and David Goldblatt, uh, whose book I'm quoting from, it's The Games, A Global History of the Olympics. I mean, th- the biggest problem for most of us with the, I- with, with the IOC is that we think that they co- they're collectively a lying sack of poop. If they tell me the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, I don't believe them. Um, and, and, and so uh, you end the book with, in fact, the IOC thinking it, we have to change or be changed. I mean, how likely is it, though, in that, you know, 10, 20, 24 years from now, we'll see something different from what we see now, something better? I mean, you know, I don't have uh, I, I don't have a crystal ball, but I do see that, um, you know, change is being forced upon the ISC, if only because so few cities are prepared to actually bid for the games. You know, 2022 winter games, they were down to Almaty in Kazakhstan and Beijing, 180 miles, you know, from the mountains. 2024, you know, they're down. Okay, it's four, but Rome's about to pull out. Um, I don't think Budapest is a serious bidder. And so we're down to two again, one of whom is L.A., unrepeatable. Um, and there is a really, there is there is the really serious pressure. Um, will they change? I mean, it seems to me, you know, there is a whole slew of possible reforms of the, of the governance of the IOC to the way they conduct their bidding, the constituency who decides the way in which it was hosted, you know, uh, an insistence on social equability in uh, the hosting of the Games. You know, coming up with good ideas is um, is not the problem. Is there the will from any of those agents I'm really struggling at the moment. You know, I'm really struggling at the moment to find it. And, you know, we have, we, the global public, who love and consume the games, kind of have a responsibility. You know, the show is, the show is on. We're going to enjoy it. But we need to think about ways in which we can pressure these people to make a shift. Because otherwise, you know, we either don't have the games or we have games that are so far away from any of the kind of ethical claims that the IOC makes that it becomes unwatchable. Oh, we're going to take a little break. David Goldblatt will be with us some more. We're going to add another voice to the conversation after this. All right, we're back. We're talking about the Olympics. Uh, we're talking about them somewhat fatalistically. Uh, I guess that's sort of inevitable. Although at the end of the show, we are going to put a little pot of gold at the end of the rainbow for you. Uh, you'll meet an incredibly engaging young man who's at the Olympics right now, both uh, furthering the legacy of his father, who meddled in the same sport in which he now uh, competes, uh, and who seems to have a pretty well-adjusted, down-to-earth attitude about this whole thing. But that is to come. Uh, right now, we want to talk a little bit more about some of the problems attending these Oli- specific Olympics in Rio. Joining us is David Goldblatt, whom you've been listening to. He's the author of The Games, A Global History of the Olympics. And Christian D'Andrea joins us now, editor-in-chief at Anchor of Gold, as well as a writer for SB Nation. Uh, Welcome to our conversation, Christian. Hey, Colin. Thank you for having me. 
So, um, you know, the, the timeline that you posit, posit for uh, the run up to these Olympics, I mean, it's kind of amazing in terms of the, the red flags about health, the red la- flags about political stability, the red flags uh, about the, the economic viability of this whole project. Are there one or two things that jump out at you in particular as sort of red lights flashing on the dashboard as we headed into this Olympics? Uh, I mean, the number one issue right now uh, that we're seeing with uh, with athletes arriving at the Olympic Village that the infrastructure hasn't quite been there. Uh, we had a lot of buildings rushed to completion uh, and a lot of problems created from that. Uh, you have countless athletes going on, on Twitter, on social media, making it clear that their accommodations right now are not acceptable. Uh, and that's basically their, uh, there's flooding, there are fires. Uh, they're essentially living in completely unfinished dormitories. So that, that's the biggest issue right now. But I think really you can take a look and, and break down all these failures into four different categories. You have one, that infrastructure problem. Uh, two, corruption from the political level on down. Three, an environmental level, whether that's Zika or uh, Zika, rather, or the uh, complete, completely polluted Guanabara Bay. Uh, and then finally, crime, which is uh, kind of – and there's a lot of overlap uh, between those four categories entirely. So – uh, we're seeing a little bit of everything that's really coming in and making this strange, perfect storm of awful circumstances in Rio this week. I'm David Goldblatt. You've had a chance to compare this to an awful lot of other preceding Olympics. And as I alluded, for example, Mexico City was preceded not just by the kind of demonstrations that there have been uh, in Brazil and as there have been in other cities hosting the Olympics, but a full out, mostly concealed from the press massacre of demonstrators. I mean, how how does Rio look? Is it an especially bad case or is this just kind of the way Olympics tend to be? I mean, it's, it's a really good contrast because it, it is extraordinary that at Mexico City, you know, months of student protests fermenting through the summer should then, you know, culminate, you know, before the Games in this slaughter and then a protracted period of, uh, of repression. And that Avery Brundage, the then president of the IOC, when asked by the press about it and the implications for the Games, could say, I was at the opera. Uh, and that would be enough to just silence the matter. I mean, Brazil, um, you know, for all its faults, is an open democratic society. And um, it is all, you know, everything is, is being, is just out there, uh, which makes it even even harder. I mean, you know, many of the problems that uh, Rio is encountering, of course, you would have found at other games, but at Sochi and Beijing, you know, much less was reported. Uh, and so that makes it even tougher for Rio. But I will say, you know, Rio is is doing its best to match the um, the the individual disasters and difficulties of a whole range of other games. You know, it's almost as late as Athens. Its rake-offs aren't quite as big as Sochi's, but it's getting there. Um, it's you know, and fabulously bad timing. <laughs> So, Christian, I I still uh, I'm no stranger to cynicism and fatalism, uh, and I embrace uh, a lot of the things in David Goldblatt's book and in your reporting. But I still want to watch the Olympics and kind of enjoy them the way people enjoy the Olympics. So. So, Christian, help me out with that a little bit. What what can I watch for? What will be genuinely exciting and fun uh, about 2016? Oh, yeah. There are a lot of great American athletes that are going to be very exciting and become household names as Olympic Games. Uh, number one on the list is Simone Biles, gymnast, uh, 19 years old, so she was too young to compete in the 2012 Games. Uh, all she's done since then, since hitting the senior circuit at 16 years old, 
She's won 10 gold medals in world championship competition. Uh, she does things that literally no other gymnast can do. She has her own dismount named after her. Uh, just a tremendous, tremendous talent. Um, so what we're going to see is, uh, you know, she's competing on an American team with some old, some veterans, some some household names from 2012 like Allie Raisman and Gabby Douglas. But she's really going to be the breakout star of this Olympics if she even just competes to 90% of her ability. Um, there's a chance that she could leave this game with four different gold medals, uh, possibly more. Um, and she's just she's just fun to watch. Uh, four foot eight, this tiny little powerhouse, springs for legs. It's like she has the ability to negotiate with gravity when she's in the air. She's going to do things that people have never seen before. She's going to be a huge, huge hit at these Olympics. Uh, another big storyline, Vivi mm-hmm. Ledecky, uh, American swimmer. Uh, this is thought to be her coronation on a global scale. Uh, she's a three-time global swimmer of the year, and this is her first real Olympics at her peak. Uh, she's won gold before, um, but over her career, you're looking at someone who's broken 11 different world records. Uh, she's going to come into these games with a chance to become the female Michael Phelps or Mark Spitz, and I, I think that's those two female athletes are going to come. Uh, they're going to be must-see TV in the first place, but they're going to be the shining stars uh, from America after these games. Right, and uh, Katie Ledecky, by all accounts, also an extraordinarily nice human being, which we like to hear. You know, uh, David Goldblatt, uh, the American pundit William F. Buckley, was once asked why his posture was so bad, and he said, it is difficult to stand up straight with the weight of what I know. Uh, and so <laughs> with the weight of what you know, can, can you actually enjoy the Olympics? Will you be hate-watching these Olympics, or will you, in fact, extract joy from them the way people hope to do you know it never gets us anywhere to kind of you know beat out beat ourselves up about these things the disaster has already happened you know what the missed opportunities you know for the people of rio have already happened and that legacy is determined whether we we watch or not i mean i kind of think yeah i will enjoy it. i'm really looking forward to seeing those athletes I'm looking forward to seeing the people I don't even know about and being a tourist in sports and cultures and emotions and stories I haven't even encountered. And that's still the sort of redeeming purpose. I think, you know, there's an obligation, though, you know, to watch, but to watch harder and to watch more critically and above all, you know, to enjoy the show, but not to let all the other stuff disappear and to be forgotten, to be washed away. You know, um, the two have to be seen you know, to see the one, you have to see to see the other. Um, Christian, uh, basketball is always kind of interesting, and it's a much more international sport now than it was in the era of the Dream Team. Uh, although, and this is, I suppose, harping a little bit on the negative, a lot of eyes will be on Draymond Green, who's playing for the Team, team USA. Rarely has an athlete been so associated with one particular part of the body that's not typically used in his sport. Uh, and so Draymond Green, of course, having been penalized during the NBA Finals for uh, shots to the groin, uh, has now engaged in a different kind of shot to the groin? <laughs> a shot of the groin. Shot of the groin. So, so what did he do? Did he, he what he 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 sent a picture of himself, that particular part of himself? Uh, he did, yeah. He uh, he was trying to make use of Snapchat's uh, private messaging feature. Uh, instead, he sent a picture of himself uh, out to the masses. He deleted it very quickly, but like the internet, uh, nothing on Snapchat can ever truly be deleted. So uh, it exists in perpetuity today. He uh, he started with the tried and true. I was hacked. Uh, excuse. And then uh, a few minutes later, it just came back. It's like, nah, you know what? That's uh, that's me. I did that. Uh, made a mistake. He owned it, uh, so good for him. 
But, uh, you know, it's, uh, I'm not going to say it's going to tarnish his legacy or reputation because it it is what it is. It's it's a picture meant for uh, another human being. It's a private matter that went public. It's not a big deal. But it's just another weird, funny circumstances following Draymond Green around. And it's turning him from this great, versatile basketball player into a little bit of a sideshow. And it's just one of those interesting things to watch as we go into the Olympics. Uh, is he going to be playing with something to prove? Is he going to have a weight on his chest? Is he going to be able to stand out on another dream team uh, coming from the Warriors? Is he going to be able to play as well? Uh, is he going to play with a chip on his shoulder, knowing that all right for the you know, for the past 24-hour news cycle, uh, he's been the butt of a bunch of jokes. Um, David Goldblatt, what can Brazil realistically expect to get out of these Olympics? Uh, best case scenario. I think the best case scenario is um, you know that it. Uh, that it just goes off, that it goes off okay, that no more infrastructure falls apart. I mean, I think it will be as a televised spectacular. I think it will be, um, I think it will be fine. I mean, you know, the uh, Rio managed to put on the Pan American Games in 2007 while, you know, there was a one-month-long, you know, firefight in the Complexo de Alamao, um, which is just a mile from the Maracanã where the opening ceremony of the Games will be held. Um you know, I, I really think that the thing we must hope for most is just, you know, that the peace is kept uh, uh, across the city. And after that, well, I think, you know, Brazil, Rio will just have to do a certain amount of licking of its wounds. Uh, and we all need to reflect very hard on how these events are chosen uh, and how they're hosted. Christian, uh, you know, uh, notwithstanding everything that's been said, um, the Olympics sort of has a way of uh, snatching victory from the jaws of defeat. I mean, I, I would assume that if people are sitting, planning to sit there watching one debacle after another, they're probably not going to get that, right? They're going to get an Olympics that probably will look a lot like the Olympics. Yeah, I think if you take a look at how everything has kind of come together as Rio has scrambled in the past few weeks, uh, you, you'll see that Things probably this is probably going to be a very average Olympic Games. Um, it's not going to be the embarrassment that a lot of people were assuming it would be, or that even the timeline leading up to the Games would suggest. Uh, Zika is not going to be the threat it once was because its temps are too cool at night to sustain the mosquitoes that carry the virus. Uh, the transit transit systems are coming together. Uh, they finished the rail line that will connect the Olympic Village to the main part downtown. Granted, they, did, they finished it two days uh, <laughs> before the Olympic start, and they're probably going to be some problems there, but that's going to be a huge, huge uh, relief for the overcrowded streets and the busing system. That was uh, a major concern heading into these games. Um, Yeah, the venues are all complete, even the velodrome where they had to stop production, uh, stop construction halfway through because the construction company that was building it literally went bankrupt. They finished that. We're going to have all the base elements of the Olympic Games here. Uh, the bigger concerns are what crime and terrorism can do there. But as far as things look, uh, this game is looking, these games are looking more and more like Sochi, where everything was terrible up until the opening ceremony started. And then there were still issues, but there were minor ones, there were funny ones, there were interesting ones. And the games went off relatively without a hitch and uh, turned out to be a strong reflection on the games themselves. All right, Christian D'Andrea is editor-in-chief at Anchor of Gold, as well as a writer for SB Nation. David Goldblatt's book is The Games, A Global History of the Olympics. Special thanks to Josh Nileo, who pulled this whole thing through, uh, and to uh, Betsy Kaplan, who's the technical director of the show. Greg Hill is tweeting for us, at WNPR Colin.
I don't can't see who's on the phones. Who's on the phones? Oh, anyway, I'll find out later. Whoever's on the phones, thank you. They're about to type that information to me. Um, tomorrow we're going to do a show. Uh, we're actually going to be re-airing a show that we think is very appropriate for this season. Uh, it's about political stagecraft. And then on Friday we're doing a show about understudies, which I'm actually not hosting. Uh, Julia uh, uh, Pistel is going to be my understudy. She is going to host a show about understudies. So... We're looking forward to all of that. Um, and, but anyway, thanks to everybody who helped out with this show. Katie Tularski is our executive director. I should say, for those of you who are awaiting the return of Kion Wolf, we still have a little ways to go uh, before she clears medical waivers to come back to us. But she will come back to us. We're very, very confident about that. Please feel free to uh, tweet back at us at WNPR Colin. Visit our Facebook page, The Colin McEnroe Show on Facebook, uh, and email me at Colin, C O L I N, at WNPR. We certainly wanted to talk to an Olympic athlete. We're so thrilled and honored to have with us Devin McEwen, uh, a native of Salisbury, Connecticut, now a member of the U.S. Olympic canoe and kayak team. Uh, He's a whitewater slalom canoeist. He's going to tell us more about that sport. He's joining us by phone from the Olympic Village in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. First of all, Devin, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. You you ha- come from uh, impressive parents. Your late father was one of the uh, stars of the sport uh, and I think one of the early U.S. medalists uh, in the sport in which you participate now. So he kind of got you in the water and your mother, Sandra Boynton, got you to be in the video of Be Like a Duck. So both of your parents kind of got you in the water uh, in, in one <laughs> way or another. Very true. Yeah, I, I often say that if I uh, if I try and undertake any athletic endeavors, I'm bound to be overshadowed by my father. And if I want to do anything creative, I'm overshadowed <laughs> by my mother. So I don't think that necessarily has to be your destiny. But um, maybe you should you should begin. Well, I, I think it's important to tell the the story of your father. Uh, your father passed a few years ago. Uh, he but he was was he the first U.S. athlete to medal in this particular sport? Uh, he was, yeah. He was the, the first um, U.S. athlete to, to medal um, in any major international competition in, in Whitewater Slalom. And, and so that was 72? It was, yeah, which was the first time that, um, that Slalom was in the Olympics. And then it was removed from the Olympic program for 20 years, and then he competed again when it was added back in 1992. And for people who don't know, explain what happens in, in Whitewater Slalom. Um, I guess the closest analogy would be to ski slalom. Uh, so it's a race for time held on uh, usually about a 300-meter stretch of whitewater. And there are uh, gates, two poles strung over the river, um, anywhere from 18 to 24 gates. And you have to navigate through the gates in a certain sequence. Um, unlike in ski slalom, if you touch the gates, you're penalized. It's a two-second penalty. And if you miss a gate, it's a 50-second penalty, which is essentially disqualification. Are there countries that are kind of powers, big uh, superpowers in this sport, or is everybody on a level uh, playing field, although that's not really what a white water, water slalom course would be? Yeah. Um, I, I, the, the real powerhouses are France, Germany, and actually uh, the Czech Republic and Slovakia, oddly enough. Even though Slovakia is only a country of five million people, it's, it's long been a powerhouse in, in uh, whitewater song. Um, what's, what's the difference between, um, say, a gold medalist in this sport and, and somebody who doesn't medal? Is it balance, speed? I mean, if you're the best, what does that mean that you do better than anybody else? Um, 
hard to say. The really elite paddlers are just, um, you know, they, they may be in somewhat better shape, but, but all the um, racers on the international circuit are all pretty fit. Um, it's mostly just uh, kind of this, uh, this water knowledge, this kind, of, kind of this inarticulable feel for the water and ability to read the water. Since, since the water fluctuates so much, being able to, to know uh, how, how the river or whitewater course is going to push your boat uh, is, is kind of one of the essential skills. What is, what is the Rio course like? First of all, is this an artificial course, or are you dealing with real water? Yeah, this is artificial. Um, so, so the water that pools at the bottom is pumped back up to the top, and the channel is only as long as it needs to be for, for the solemn event. Um, the Rio course is a, a little bit smaller than the last Olympic course, the London Olympic course, uh, but it's still like uh, you know pretty solid white water, class, class three, four white water. It's definitely deceptively challenging. You, you kind of feel like you're fighting the water a lot of the time. Some courses, you're working more with the water, um, and this one is uh, a little bit more physical um, and, and, uh, and, and kind of, um, yeah, more strenuous than, than the London one was. You're in the Olympic Village right now. What, what are the things that, I mean, I'm never going to be an Olympian. Most of my listeners, 99.9% of my listeners, they're never going to be an Olympian. What are the things we just don't understand about what it's like to be where you are right now? Oh, man, uh, hard to say. It, it's, it's definitely a surreal environment here. Uh, <laughs> it's just uh, kind of this, this strange global microcosm. You know, you go out for a jog in the morning and you get lapped by Olympic marathon runners from... <laughs> You know, who knows where from Kenya, uh, and um, you know, sit sit next to the North Korean delegation at breakfast. It's 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 just a very peculiar environment. Um, I'm assuming because this is an artificial course that you don't have to deal with some of the worries that have affected some of the other uh, aquatic events. I mean, uh, water that's not clean, water that might be dangerous. Can they keep the water that you're using basically pretty clean and, and healthy? Yeah, fortunately, yes. The, since the, the whitewater course is self-contained, um, it's chlorinated. It, it seems uh, relatively clean. No one that I know has gotten sick from it yet. So it's not. They're not nearly the same uh, water quality issues that there are for sailing or open water swimming or even the flat water uh, canoe and kayak events. How are you feeling about your chances right now? I mean, obviously, everybody who goes to the Olympics uh, can visualize him or herself up there on the blocks. Uh, getting a medal. Does it seem like a, it's within your reach? Uh, hard to say. I mean, uh, my, my partner and I have never placed higher than, I believe, 15th at the World Championships, so we would certainly be a dark horse. Uh, the Olympic field is much more limited than it is for, for the World Championships or even for World Cup competitions. They just limit the number of athletes, so any given athlete has, has a better chance of meddling than they would at, at uh, other international competitions. So, I probably wouldn't bet a lot of money on us, but uh, <laughs> but I wouldn't wouldn't bet against us either. Yeah, um, no, I was I'm, getting a huge bet on you down with some uh, some London bookies. Well, that's amazing what you just said, which is that it it in some ways might be harder to win other kinds of world champions than the Olymp championships than the Olympics because the field's bigger. So you know, there's more potential for a dark horse, I guess, to to break out and just have a, a great competition. Yeah, it's kind of a peculiar aspect of. Um, of Olympic competition and some of the smaller uh, sports is that um, there's just this effort to limit the total number of athletes at the Olympics. So um, in my sport, for example, any given country can only have uh, one boat per class. 
whereas it's three for the world championships. So the, the, the field is much, much smaller. Yeah, so kind of uh, you might not expect that, that the world championships would be a better metric of who's performing well in the sport, but, uh, but I think it, uh, objectively it is. So I want to talk a little bit about what the Olympics means to you being in the Olympics. Obviously, you you have a different and a very unusual relationship to the Olympics. Not that many people who will compete this year are the sons or daughters of former Olympians. I mean, sure, I'm sure there are plenty of them, but it's still a pretty rare thing. So that's a special thing for you. But if you can step beyond that, do you do you see this as you're representing the United States? Is this mainly, as an alternative, is it mainly something that you have dedicated yourself to doing? I mean, how do you see your role and your participation? Um, I guess I feel like I'm representing, uh, sorry, representing the U.S., uh, insofar as I'm a product of that country, like I, you know, I love my home country, and I I feel that my identity is tied to it, not not in some vague, nebulous, uh, nationalistic way, but because I'm from there and because it has a very particular culture. But but I guess I mostly feel like I'm racing for myself. Um, I in a sport this small, it's not remunerative. You kind of have to do it um, out of passion. You know, there, you're, there's no glory in it. There's no money. So I, I in any competition, I, I I feel like I'm I'm mostly just doing it for for my own pleasure. And and uh, the same holds tr- tr- uh, holds true here. Mm. So you're not going to get you're not going to be doing commercials for Old Town kayaks or something like that. After it this. seems unlikely. <laughs> it could be, could happen. It could, they, somebody has to be in their advertisements, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. You never know. You bring home the gold. Uh, anything like that can happen. But I do understand this. Th- it's not because of that, and it's probably not because you're going to be. I don't know how much airtime uh, the TV coverage gives to to whitewater slalom. I feel like it. It probably is a sport that that doesn't get covered as much. Uh, I mean, the first eight nights, I think the coverage is going to be all about swimming. Is that frustrating to you? I mean, do you wish more people could see this sport? I mean, in some ways, I've seen lots of swimming matches. I haven't really seen whitewater slalom. That might be even more exciting for me. To be honest, I, I'm someone who uh, kind of uh, cherishes his anonymity. Um, <laughs> so, so for me, it's, it's just as well that it, it doesn't get more coverage. And and the other thing is, I feel like for athletes in sports like swimming or basketball, because they they make a career out of it, their schedule is dictated for them much more um, than it is for me. Uh, you know, I kind of I can kind of do my own thing, and that's that's a big part of the appeal of of this particular sport to me. We're talking to Devin uh, McEwen. He's a native of Salisbury, and he's uh, now a member of the U.S. Olympic Canoe and Kayak Team. He's joining us by phone from the Olympic Village in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. So, I mean, back here, we're being fed this constant diet of stories about, you know, uh, there's political unrest there. There's uh, gigantic environmental problems. There's um, mosquitoes flying around with the Zika virus. I'm assuming, though, that in the Olympic Village, people aren't walking around in this constant state of dread. Yeah, I think people are more concerned with uh, trading pins or winning at <laughs> ping pong generally than they are with Zika. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that there are some concerns. But, yeah, the, 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 the environment here is mostly, you know, pretty relaxed. And uh, I think especially before the games have begun, people are, are you know, really focused on their training um, and, and probably trying to keep other concerns out of their minds. So, yeah, it's, it's not – people certainly aren't talking about Zika over dinner. Do you do you have jitters? Or do you have Olympic jitters at all, or is this just another race for you? 
Um, I always have a little bit of performance anxiety. I'm not sure that it'll be particularly different here. I mean, maybe just knowing that there's you know more more TV coverage might might give me extra butterflies. But um, yeah, I, I think I think a little bit of nervousness is necessary just to to keep your edge. But um, I'm assuming that I won't won't particularly wig out when the competition day arrives. I, I've always assumed that whether you finish first or fifth or 15th or 25th, if that's even possible, that, and this must be something that you know one way or another from your dad, that this is just this thing that can never be taken away from you. I mean, I think most of us who look at it think, what a thing it would be, no matter where you finish, to say, I'm an Olympian, and I I know some other Olympic athletes, and they never say, I was an Olympic athlete. They say, I am an Olympic athlete. I am an Olympian. Uh, And that doesn't make any difference whether 10 years have gone by or 40 years have gone by. This is something, I mean, you will, do you feel it that way, that this is something you will be for the rest of your life? I'm not sure that I necessarily do. My dad, um, you know, he was he was definitely keen on the Olympics, but he didn't put too too much emphasis on it. I think he really loved his sport in its own right, and he and he competed at it for a long time when it wasn't part of the Olympic program. So I think I I kind of try and take that away from him as well. Um, uh, you know, I I I'm really excited to be here, but I'm also excited when I get to race in the World Championships or in World Cup competitions. So yeah, it's it's definitely cool to you know go home with a jacket that says U.S. Olympic team, and uh, yeah, it's it's nice to have on one's resume. But I'm not, I'm trying not to put too too much emphasis on it. I, I don't want it to go to my head. Devin, you're way too mentally healthy about all this stuff. I would be completely insane if I were in your position. And <laughs> <laughs> I'd oh, be that, pick- that's just the front that I put on. In in my head, I'm actually uh, I'm actually losing my mind. But yeah. you know, I just <laughs> pretend to be. Is it, it. <laughs> is it okay in the, at the Olympic Village? We've also heard stories about just, you know, plumbing, electricity, TV, stuff like that. I mean, are, are you guys rel- relatively okay and comfortable there? Yeah, I mean, there have been a few minor glitches with the elevators or what have you, but, but no more than you would expect in any apartment complex. So, yeah, I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> There's... There's amazing food at the dining hall. I've been stuffing myself silly with Indian food and playing ping pong and uh, reading. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm happy as a clam. Well, Devin McEwen, it's been great to talk to you. I, I'm, I'm impressed with your level of perspective. I, I don't know what you say to wish a, a whitewater slalom canoeist luck. Uh, break a leg, you can probably. Say break a leg because yeah. I don't use my yeah. legs. So <laughs> okay, I, that's a good point. I, I can break them as much as I want. All right, well, don't break a leg anyway, but thanks for talking to us. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, bye bye. Open up your beak and go quack, quack, quack. Be like a duck. You don't have to Be like a duck. You could be like us, be like a dog, be like a dog, be like a dog.